This past Friday, Tim Keller, the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church there in New York City, is also the co-founder of the Gospel Coalition, died after a three-year battle with pancreatic cancer. Keller was a tremendous gift to the church. Uh, I don't know if you've seen posts on social media. You probably don't run in the circles that, that Trevor and I run in, but uh, pastors all over the country, all over the world for that matter, have talked about and uh, the influence he's had on their life and the uh, tremendous mentorship he's given them from a distance through the writings that he's had because Keller was uh, a preacher, he was uh, an author, he was a mentor. His writing challenged the way we think critically when it comes to the area of theology and apologetics. He's called Christians to, to hold um, high the Bible while intersecting it with the struggles of our day. In his book, The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism, Keller said this, Religion says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. Christianity says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. In this statement, he highlighted one, if not the greatest, struggle of humanity. You see, the Bible makes it clear that man was created to worship the Lord. In fact, the first two chapters of Scripture, this purpose was easily and joyfully fulfilled. However, everything changed when Adam and Eve, there in the garden, took of that forbidden fruit and ate it. We refer to this rebellion and its subsequent curse as the fall of mankind. And this curse has been passed down and will continue to be passed down in every generation, meaning everyone is born into this world in rebellion against God. Today, we live in this post-Eden world, and the desire to worship or to be religious still exists. Every one of us, and for that matter, everyone in this world has a desire to worship, has a desire perhaps to be religious, and yet that desire is not to worship the God of their creation, not to worship the God of their redemption. And so the problem lies in the fact that this desire to worship is is met with an equal desire to not worship the God of creation. Many times this rebellion is seen in an overt way. It's up front, it's out there, and yet at other times it often veils itself in religious activity, which is Keller's point in that statement. You see, religion can be deceptive. Religion can lead us down the wrong path. Stephen Board, commenting on the Apostle Paul's teaching in the book of Romans, said this. From Romans 1 through 3, we learn that mankind knows something of the true God, but turns instead to elaborate, elaborate substitutes. Far from a quest for God, human religion, he says, is an evasion of him. In other words, as we are pursuing our religiosity, it's many times not a pursuit after God. It's not a chasing after the Lord. It is a way to evade him, to look religious, to look spiritual, to look like we're in conformity to the God of creation, and yet we are evading him every step of our way. So in our passage this morning, we are going to see this evasion of God and see it on full display in this interaction Jesus has with a Pharisee and a lawyer. If you remember where we've been so far in this chapter of Luke, Luke 11, Jesus has just performed an exorcism. He's had some teaching on that from his critics. He's addressed them. Now we're going to see that on the heels of this exorcism and the teaching, he's going to be invited by a Pharisee to lunch. 
He's going to go to this home, and there he's not going to do some of the pharisaical washing. He's not going to wash his hands in a certain way, and this Pharisee is going to be astonished. That's another way to say deeply offended by the fact that Jesus has neglected and rejected their traditions. That's going to lead into a a conversation, but that's a nice way to say it. It's really going to lead into Jesus judging them and passing condemnation on the Pharisees and the scribes, the lawyers of his day. And so Jesus, in essence, denounced those who would elevate customs over the commands of God. Here's what happens in our context. Because I don't think today when you go home for lunch, you're going to have a Jewish ceremonial way to wash your hands, to make yourself clean before the Lord. But all of us have a tendency to be religious, and if we're not careful, we will pursue this religiosity. We will pursue this custom of how to be spiritual, how to be in relationship with God, and yet neglect the greater and weightier commands of Scripture, Right? So we struggle with this. So let's look at what the text says. Luke chapter 11, let's begin reading in verse 37. We'll read through the end of the chapter. Luke says this, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish But inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you. For you're like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, right here, you would expect Jesus to be like, I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to include you in that. It was just meant for those boys over there. But that's not what Jesus does. He doubles down. He says, Woe to you lawyers also. For you load people with burdens, hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent the deeds to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. So that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Nevertheless, Jesus was not on friendly ground. And on this occasion, he did not play friendly. 
So he speaks to these Pharisees, he speaks to these lawyers. Uh, we hear this term a lot as we read the New Testament, and we, we hear it, but we may not always know what a Pharisee is. Well, a Pharisee was a certain class of religious leader there in the Jewish uh, culture, Jewish lands during the times of the New Testament. This group of leaders were not necessarily from the upper class like those who were called the Sadducees. Pharisees were more from the common class of people. But they were men who were committed to living holy lives. You see, the very name Pharisee means the separate ones, the, the separated ones. So they were thought to be holy men, the true community of Israel. Here's another way to look at Pharisees juxtaposed over and against Sadducees. The Pharisees, were the, lib or the Pharisees were the conservatives. They believed the Bible. They believed the prophets. They believed what we have is the Old Testament. They held it high. They, they warred for it, so to speak. They didn't necessarily take up arms, per se, though they were willing to cast stones against the apostle Paul because they viewed him as a heretic. These were men who were conservative in their beliefs. The Sadducees were the liberals. Those are the ones who denounced miracles and angels and the work of the Spirit. Those were the liberals of the day. And so the Pharisees were the ones who believed the Bible. They were the ones who conserved and sought to live holy. And when a man became a Pharisee, this is what had to happen. He first endured a probationary period up to one year in length, during which time he had to prove his ability to keep the rituals of the law. Many of the scribes, or I should say many of the Pharisees were scribes, they were lawyers, they were experts in the law who so revered it that they hedged it in with extra protective laws. In fact, the Mishnah says this, tradition is a fence set around the law. That's what the Pharisees did. They so revered the law that they wanted to make sure that they adhered to it, therefore they created other laws, more laws, to help them keep the law of God. So we can easily say they love the law. They love God's word. Full entrance into this community came after this probationary period when a man would pledge to observe all the laws regarding purity and tithes, all of these traditions. Therefore, these men were exemplary. And yet, tragically, their spiritual eyes had become darkened. They had become bad. That's what we saw back in verse 34, the text we were looking at last Sunday. These men had become darkened by pride, darkened by greed, so that the very light within them had become an appalling darkness. So deep was the darkness that this, these meticulous religious idealists, think about this, the, the ones who were the conservatives, the ones who believed what we would say is the Bible, these are the ones who, came, who became the bitterest enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ. You read the Gospels. Do we ever see Jesus getting in the fights with the Sadducees that he gets in the fights with when it comes to the Pharisees? No. Why? Because he understood the Pharisees didn't believe anything. What's the battle about that? But the Pharisees claim to know the word of God and to hold to the word of God. And so Jesus is constantly contending with them because they had it wrong. When we think about who the Pharisees were and the image that they projected, it should surprise us that they were Jesus' enemies because these men were so deeply committed, so deeply committed to observing and obeying the word of God. They were teachers of the word who worked to preserve its authority in their culture, and yet they possessed the knowledge of the word but missed its very point. 
You see, these men, knowing the word of God, should have been able to look and see that Jesus fulfilled every aspect of the Messiah that was prophesied. And yet they looked past Jesus and mocked Jesus and ultimately crucified Jesus. Even though they knew the word of God, they missed its very point. Though they knew the word of God about holiness, they missed the point of how to be holy themselves. Their refusal to walk by faith did not just affect them, however. As Jesus blisters them here in this text, they became a stumbling block that hindered others' belief and others' obedience to the word of God. And so this morning from these verses, I want us to see the key to knowledge. It's simply simply not found in the amount of information you know. You see, you can be like a Pharisee and know the word of God backwards and forwards in any way you want to do it. You can be able to quote the whole book of Romans and miss the gospel. It's not so much about information, it's about transformation. How much of the word of God is you allow, have you allowed to transform you? You see, the key that unlocks knowledge is obedience to what you know is true. And the woes Jesus offers here to these religious leaders, there's two things that I want us to see this morning. Here's the first thing. I want you to see deceptive religion. Religion is deceptive. It can be deceptive. If you recall in the passage we looked at previously, last Sunday, Jesus has just warned the people against the danger of spiritual light becoming darkness within them. So the Pharisees' invitation here to come and to have lunch with him is not hospitable and it's not an accident. They are trying to do, just as the text ends with in this chapter, they're trying to find Jesus in some sort of misspeak, some sort of misstep, so they can trap him and squash him. And so Jesus goes to lunch with them, even though they have a malevolent intention behind this invitation. Jesus knows all things. He recognizes this. I believe it's why he probably didn't wash his hands. Now, if you came to my house... And and we're not talking about ceremonially washing, but if you came to my house and you didn't go wash your hands, I'm not going to raise a big stink about it, but I'm probably going to notice, right? Especially if you went into the restroom, but I didn't hear the water running, and you came back out and sat at the table. I'm probably going to pass the stuff around the other way and, or, or take it from someone else and not take it from you. I mean, that's just me. And I'm not a germaphobe, right? Many of you know I'm not a germaphobe, but if you don't wash your hands, I'm probably not eaten what you've just touched. Um, But I think Jesus here is not looking for cleanliness. Jesus is looking for an opportunity to speak to spiritual things. And so he doesn't wash his hands ceremonially. Why? Because he knows they're going to notice. He knows it's going to give an opportunity to speak to them and to speak truth to them and to call them out so that they can see with new and fresh eyes. So we learn from this interaction with the Pharisee and this lawyer that God, think about this, is more concerned about your internal health than he is about your external health. Did you hear what I just said? Jesus is more concerned with what's in your heart than what's on your hands. Now, what is in your heart will play itself out in what you say, how you think, what you do. And, and so the external is important, but you don't treat the symptoms of external issues. You see and recognize the symptoms from the external and understand that they're pointing back to a deeper, darker sickness that is within the human heart. So these Pharisees had dark 
hearts, spiritually dark hearts. The light of God's word that they knew and believed and adhered to and followed had become not light, but darkness. Why? Because of their failure to follow it. Their failure to observe its objective, which is what? Salvation by faith alone. All throughout scripture, we read the point of God's word to his people. It was never to give humans a certain way to be religious. God never called Israel out and gave them the law through Moses so that they could be religious people and go through religious exercises. No, it was always to teach them of the holiness of God and the wonderfulness of God and the power of God and that it would lead them to faith into him. They always had a chance to believe. Is that not what happens in the Garden of Eden? God tells Adam... Everything is for you, but don't eat from that tree. What is that? That's an opportunity for Adam and Eve to believe God, that what he says is true. You can take it to the blank, that he's faithful. They were tempted to disbelieve, to not have faith in him. So everything in Scripture is always calling us to faith in the Lord and his word. So Jesus here picks this fight to show that these men can and must believe on God, which leads to forgiveness of sin and transform lives. It leads to transform families. It leads to a transformed culture. I mean, think about it. Paul says of Father Abraham, the father of Israel, that he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It always comes down and comes back to belief. These Pharisees were deceived by the religious activity. Put it in our context They were deceived because they were in church every Sunday. They were deceived because they knew the Bible. They were deceived because they knew the songs. They were deceived because they knew the language. They were deceived because they thought that and had bought into the idea that those forms of worship were enough without the object of worship, without God himself. It's four ways of deception that I believe are apparent here in this text. Things that are still true today. First of all, they were deceived because we, have, we see that there's a fixation on outward appearances. Look at verse 39. He says, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. Religion is on display. You see, religion leads one to believe that looking godly without being godly is good enough. If I can go through the motions, if I can look the part, if I can say the things, if I can kind of sound like I'm on par with what the text is saying without actually allowing it to seep into the deep recesses of my heart, that's good enough. That's what religion says, and that's what these men had bought into. And so today, if you're gathering for worship, if you're participating in small group, if you're singing worship songs and reading your Bible and sharing the gospel with others, and if you're staying away from the big sins... And you're good in the eyes of God. That would be a modern day Pharisee. Those of a different religion might look at this and say, if you're just sincere enough, that's what's important. It's not so much the the, the forms of worship or the object of your worship. It's the sincerity by which you do worship. That's what's important. And so in all of that, you're discounting what God has said and you're creating your own forms, your own worship, which means you're creating your own object of worship, which is always yourself. There's a fixation on outward appearances to look the part. So this understanding 
As we think about it, it refuses to recognize that what a person does is driven by who a person is on the inside. This leads us to a second deception. There's a neglection of inward transformation. Look at verse 40. He goes on to say, you fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Jesus here is shining the spotlight on the inner man. Why? Because it's always, it's always the focus of his word. He's always focusing on the inner man. He's not interested, as I said earlier, treating the symptoms. Now, when you are sick, like I've, I came down with a head cold this week, and it's kind of got remnants are still there. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice. But when you've got a cold, now sometimes colds just have to run their course, right? There's not really much you can do that other than treat the symptoms, and that's what I've been doing. But when you've had a, a, a sickness that's been going on for a long time, there comes a point, think about this, there comes a point when you say, enough with the symptoms treatment i got to get to the heart of this issue, right? i got to get to the issue that's causing this. What is that issue? That's what happens when it comes to our sin. We can't be satisfied with just touching the symptoms and behavior modification. No, we got to get to the root of it. And that's what God's Word always moves us toward. So think about this. What is the Bible and why is it given to us? It's not given to us that it might be some sort of therapeutic book. Full of some sort of self-help descriptions or prescriptions. What is the Word of God? Hebrews 4 would tell us it's a surgical book. It's a book that seeks to dissect the heart of the problem. Think about this, which is the problem of the heart. So the Bible is always going to move us to the heart issue because the heart is the heart of the problem. It's the objective. It's the focus of the problem. It's the genesis of the problem. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, for the word of God is living and active. He's telling us here the purpose of the word. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. What does the word of God want to do in your life? God's purpose is that it would cut you. You see, every time you open your Bible in your own personal devotions or you're sitting in a small group or you're listening to someone teach it on the radio or on the TV or on the internet, every time you're sitting here and we're as a church gathered corporately for worship, when you're sitting under the teaching of the Word of God, its purpose is not to make you feel good. Its purpose is to cut you because you need surgical intervention at times. You need the Word of God to, to cut deep down into your heart, deep down into your life, to expose the things that are rotten. I mean, what happens if, if you had some sort of abscess in your body? What would the doctor do? He wouldn't just put some topical ointment on it and say, hey, let's treat these symptoms. I hope you get better. No, he's going to look at that abscess, and he's going to decide, or she's going to decide, I've got to get a scapula, and I've got to begin to carve that thing out. I've got to get as deep as the rottenness goes. I've got to get it all out. That's what the Word of God is seeking to do in your life. I appreciate that, Mark. That was good that you encouraged me this morning with the preach it. And the rest of you, I think you need some more coffee this morning. 
That's the word of God, though. Man, it's good that God is so gracious that he would give us his word to do the heart surgery that we need. So as we move on in the book of Hebrews, he goes on in these verses, on into chapter 5 and following chapters. And the writer here begins to focus the attention of his reader on who? On Jesus. And who is Jesus? He's the great high priest. So the writer is telling us here, here's the word of God that's given to you to do the heart surgery needed, and the surgeon is who? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the high priest. He's going to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. He's going to die. His blood will be shed for your sins. He's going to be the payment for that. He's going to be the one that rectifies your sins. There's a third way we see this deception. Dereliction of brotherly love is on display in verse 42. He says, But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. Religion often leads to wrong priorities. These Pharisees here were incredibly careful to tithe everything in their lives. He he speaks specifically of the mint and the rue and the herbs. What what are these things? These were things that they were probably growing around the house, right? They were just the common things, the things that that, that the wife would be grabbing as she's uh, cooking the evening meal. And they were meticulous about tithing even from those things. And yet Jesus charges them with neglecting the weightier matters of love and of justice. So in essence, they're majoring on minors. They needed to place their religious activity within a proper perspective. That's what Jesus is saying here. So the love of God and of neighbor summed up the entire law, according to Matthew 22, which highlights just how deceived these religious men were. They neglected loving their brothers. Uh, Many of the Pharisees, if not all of the Pharisees, the great contention between the Pharisees and the regular everyday Jew was over the fact that the regular everyday Jew weren't as committed to keeping the law. They fudged a little bit, right? I mean, I don't want you to confess right now, but how how many of us are perfect? Anybody perfect in here? Please raise your hand if you're perfect so that we can show you that you're not perfect. Because you know you're not. But these men thought that they were. Thought that they had arrived. Thought they had done that. And so in their arrogance, they were so fixated on the little things. They were neglecting the great weightier matters of the faith. Loving God, which always leads to loving others. This brings us to a fourth and final way of deception that we see. There's a rejection of God's word. In verse 52, speaking to the lawyers, he says, For you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. So while these religious leaders could recite whole sections of God's word and had come to celebrate and even memorialize the prophets of God, what he's saying there is this. In your religiosity, in your pursuit of intellectual spirituality, you recognize that the prophets of God that were killed by your fathers, your ancestors, was a bad thing. And so you built monuments to it. You built tombs to it. You recognize Micah and others for these great uh, feats and great uh, activity for the Lord. And yet, you have failed to understand that the message of the prophets is not just meant for their generation. It's meant for your generation, and you're not heeding it. And so the condemnation is on you 
The condemnation is on you because you're not listening to the word of God. You've rejected it in your life. So these lawyers went on to burden the people with laws to keep rather than pointing them to the only one who could fulfill the requirements of the law on their behalf. They honored and martyred, martyred, honored the martyred prophets who preached but didn't recognize their own condemnation that came as a result of the preaching of the prophets. And they refused to believe on the gospel while blocking the path for others to believe. Religion is deceptive. It gives the appearance of godliness while denying its power. That's what religion does. You look the part. You look like you're godly. You look like you've got everything together. And yet you are nothing more than a whitewashed tomb full of dead men's bones. There's a second thing that's on display. Not only is the deception of religion, but we see here an honest reverence. So the focus of this whole interaction is uh, to offer a strong indictment against religious leaders. is to speak to their failure to believe God's word and hold to God's word and, and see the objective or the focus, the person of God's word that it's pointing to. And yet when we look at this, we can deduct the opposite of what's being said here, the adverse point. And that is, rather than being deceived by religion, let's have an honest reverence for God. Three things I wanted you to see about honest reverence. First of all, it focuses on the heart. As we mentioned earlier, the heart of the problem with man is the problem of the heart. You see, the greatest issue in your life is not that some of you struggle with addiction. Alcohol, tobacco, prescription drugs, uh, uh, pornography, whatever the vice is. The greatest issue in your life is, is not that. That is a symptom of a greater problem. And the greater problem is that you're not allowing the Lord to be everything for you. You're finding fulfillment in something else that only God can fulfill. And so it's a heart issue in your life. And so the Bible's always calling us, drawing us back to the heart, the problem of the heart. And today in our culture, just like in every culture, the focus on solving these societal issues and individual problems is always on behavior. How can we modify one's behavior? How can we fix the issues in people? Well, the solution is let's figure out how to change the behavior. So many times it's a deterrent, right? If we want to keep crime at a minimal level, naturally you want to have consequences for breaking the law. The Bible would call us to this. So there's nothing wrong with that. There needs to be a deterrent. There needs to be consequences to an action. So that's one of the solutions we have to the symptoms of the heart, a deterrent. Other times, we look at it and say, all right, we just got to figure out how to get around and figure out where a person is and help them understand, give them a new teaching, give them more information so that they will make better choices. But the end result is the same on both of those. We want to change the behavior. How do you change one's behavior? It's just like the disease. It's just like the sickness. You can treat the symptoms or you can go to the root of the problem. The Bible always takes us to the root of the problem, the problem of the heart. It's focusing on the heart. And so an honest reverence before God, an honest reverence before his word will lead us to focus on the heart. So no matter what the issue is, this prescri prescribed solution 
in the Bible is not to alter your behavior first. It's to allow the Word of God, through the person of God, change the heart from evil to holy. Not because you're doing right, but because God has made you right. There's a second aspect to this honest reverence, and that is you receive God's Word. The Bible in Jeremiah 23, 29 is um, alluded to uh, or, or compared to a hammer. What does a hammer do? Hammer nails in or knocks in nails, drives in nails. Sometimes you use a hammer to break things, right? You know, um, you're a big HGTV person and, and you watch whatever your favorite show is, Fixer Up or something like that. Uh, one, of the, one of the funnest parts of the episode, no matter what the episode is, or the show is, is Demo Day, right? Because you go in there on Demo Day and all you've got is a five-pound sledge or a 10-pound sledge and you're just knocking things down, right? You're just going to town. If you've ever done your own demo, that's what you do. And when we did the demo for the cottage that Pastor Nate lives in right now, we had a Demo Day or we had some Demo days because it kind of carried over too long, but that was fun. The hard part and the not so fun part was putting it back together. But demo day is fun because you take a hammer and you get to smash stuff. The Bible in Jeremiah 23, 29 refers to the word of God as a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. So if the condition of man is that he is wicked to the core and in rebellion against the God who created him, then nothing will help his situation other than what God has said about it. And so again, Hebrews 4, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing down to the details and most microscopic parts of the heart. It's there to do damage so that it can then rebuild it. Make it new. And so an honest, holy reverence for God will receive his word as it is without prejudice. And this brings us to a third aspect. It loves God and others. An authentic focus on the heart and the reception of God's word will result in genuine love for God. And that genuine love for God always leads to love for others. What does it mean to love God? Well, Jesus said in Luke 6, 46, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. If you love me, you will obey what I said. That's what it means to love the Lord. And so when we love the Lord, we're going to obey his commandments. And what does his commandments say? We're to love one another. And so these men, these lawyers, these Pharisees, these religious leaders knew the word of God, and yet purposely and intentionally were neglecting the word of God. They were satisfied with religious action without spiritual transformation. Therefore, it meant they had no love for God and they had no love for one another. Their religion was dead. And so, if we're going to love God and love others, that means we're going to love people. We're going to receive them as they are. It means that we're going to look out for their spiritual welfare. We're going to make sure that we're trying to share the gospel with them because we know that the greatest need in their life is not food or water or shelter, as important as those things are. The greatest need in their life is to know the Lord Jesus Christ and that receive his forgiveness in their life. So we're going to be concerned about their spiritual welfare. But it doesn't, all, doesn't mean that we're going to neglect their physical welfare. So we're going to think about the needs that they have physically. Is it food? Is it water? Is it shelter? Is it clothing? What are the physical needs? Maybe it's medical. We're going to be concerned about that. 
Because the love of God compels us to do so. But we're not going to just stop there. We're going to be concerned about them emotionally. What's their mental capacity? What's going on in their life that we need to speak to and help? What can we do to serve them emotionally? We're going to be concerned about them in all aspects of their life. Taking them as they are. Loving them as they are. Receiving them as they are. But the love of God will compel us to serve them. Why? Because we are living out the word of God that tells us, who Jesus is. We're just being Jesus to them. Is that not how Jesus received you? Do you think you had it all together before you came to know Jesus Christ? Anybody say, you know what, I, man, I was perfect. Jesus was blessed to get me. No, you're a mess. You're still a mess, but just not so much a mess, right? Jesus receives us as we are, takes us as we are, then begins to clean us up. We want to do that to others. So this focus on loving God and the focus on loving others happens because the heart has been and continues to be softened by the Lord's activity in our lives. And, and we're simply walking in obedience to his word. Let me, with that, share with you a few things, five ways to walk out this obedience. How can we um, be sensitive to the things of God and not get caught up in just going through religious motions? Because if you're not careful... Every one of us can become our own Pharisee. Like, man, I've got it all together. I memorize scripture. I know how to sing the songs. I know the lingo. I'm in church all the time. Look at me. I'm awesome. I'm God's, I'm, a, I'm earth's gift to the kingdom of heaven. So let me give you some simple, practical ways to walk out your obedience. Here's the first thing. Pray for a soft heart. Here, here's what I want you to think with this. Spiritual drift is a constant threat. This summer, if you haven't already been to the beach, and you get in the ocean, especially if you go to Virginia Beach with that jet, uh, jet stream or whatever, the current. Jet stream's weather. I don't know what it is in the ocean. I'm, what is it? Gulf stream. Yeah, I knew it was a stream. Uh, not like a creek, but a stream. Um, showing my arc and ease right there. If you get in the ocean, this happened to me a few years ago. We were uh, with the Kipleys, and I was out there trying to get as close as I could to the porpoises on a bodyboard. And I, you know, I knew that you constantly pulled out, but I didn't know it happened so fast, or maybe I just lost track of time. But I turned around, and I'm like, it wasn't miles, but it felt like miles off the coast. And I'm just on this little bodyboard, and I'm thinking, I'm going to be the guy that has to get rescued by a lifeguard on a wave runner. How embarrassing is that? So I get, I'm trying to swim back, and I don't know how long it took. It seemed like 30 minutes. I'm trying to swim, and I'm trying all these different ways to swim because you get exhausted. And no matter what I did, it seemed like I just kept going further and further and further out. Because that drift happens. So eventually I found a, one of those um, currents that took me toward and, and kind of just allowed it to push me and made it back and didn't die, though I felt like dying because I was so tired. But what happens in, in the ocean is what happens in your spiritual life. If you're not paying attention, the drift will take you where you don't want to be. It'll take you to a hard heart. So pray for a soft heart. When you begin to notice some hardness, begin to ask the Lord for a fresh softening of your heart. Number two. Meditate on God's word daily. So when you're reading it, read it slowly. Chew on it. Never forget that it's by the word that your heart is changed and you are made glad in and before God. Meditate on it. Salivate or, 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 or just kind of 
Yeah, salivate on it. Put it in your mouth and chew on that thing. That's a good way to put it. It's kind of gross, but that's a good picture. Number three. Sometimes I'm not as professional as I try to be. Um, try to come up with these slick sayings, but no, sometimes it just comes out. Number three, receive God's word in faith. So when you're reading the Bible, you're meditating on the Bible, and you're, you're trying to hide it in your heart, don't receive it as cold and dead. The word of God says about itself that it's living and active. It's an active word. It's a living word. And so anything that's alive, there's warmth there. Anything that's alive, there's movement there. And so receive the word of God in faith, believing it, taking it into your heart and resting your life upon it. Number four, apply God's word to daily life. So don't just believe it, quote unquote, apply it. You don't really believe it until you apply it, until you begin to walk it out. So when you read the Bible, understand that God is speaking to you. But when you apply it to how you live, what happens? That voice of God gets louder. Sometimes you may wonder, man, I really just don't sense the Lord's direction in my life. There are times when God just seems to be silent, right? There there are seasons of life where that happens. But sometimes you can't hear his voice because you're not living and walking in the truth he's already given you. And so as you obey the word of God and apply the word of God to how you're living today with what's going on, what happens is you begin to have ears that can hear better what God wants to give you in the next go around. So learn to listen. And you listen by applying. Number four, expect God's blessing in righteousness and growth. The main idea that we've held tightly through throughout this passage is that the key that unlocks knowledge is obedience to the truth that you know. So when believers walk in this obedience to what God has given you in your word, you can and you should expect there to, for there to be growth in righteousness, growth in uh, sensitivity to the Lord, growth in your desire to continue to obey, growth in your love for him and for others. All of those things you should expect to experience. Why? Because God's desire for you, God's plan for you is that you would look more and more like Jesus. And this happens as you... Hide his word in your heart. Seek to apply it. And then it begins to be pressed out through your words, your thoughts, your actions, and all of the things that you're engaged in. So we've seen this focus on the internal that leads to the external. The Pharisees were concerned about the external and hoped perhaps that it would change the internal. That's not the way the Lord works. He's inside out. Every person has been created in the image and the likeness of God. Every person Therefore, knows something of the true God. But here's what we know from Genesis 3 and everything after that. Sinfulness leads people to turn instead, not to God, but to elaborate substitutes. Far from a quest for God, what human religion does is seek to evade him. This avoidance is not just true for those outside of Christianity. Here's what we know about those who claim to know Christ. They're clinging to a religious experience. They're they're clinging to a set of religious activities. They're clinging to a list of moral obligations. And perhaps on the outside, their life may look good. It may look clean. It may look like it's put together, that there is something of the life of God within them. But yet on the inside, if we were able to pull back the veil and to look inside, we would see what Jesus says elsewhere. They are full of dead men's bones. Rather than life being inside and cleanliness being inside, 
There's rottenness and evil. So it's one thing to say, I know Jesus. It's quite another to walk in Jesus. I want you to feel that. When I was a teenager, man, I grew up in a great church. And a gospel preaching church, a church that called people to faith, a, a church that discipled, a church that, that called uh, young people and even adults to, to, to listen to the call of God vocationally. I mean, I had a great in, spiritual investment in my life. And so as an eighth grader going into ninth grade, I, I made a profession of faith. But I went home that afternoon, and I knew that it was not a genuine profession of faith. I just prayed a prayer, and I was scheduled to be baptized the next Sunday. And, and, I, and I knew that, but I tried to make that thing work. You know how successful I was with that? I was the most miserable person I knew for five years. But I looked apart. Man, I was involved in my student ministry, not just going, I was leading. Uh, certain seasons of the year when, when, when we, either we, the student ministry was doing or I had the time to do it because I was involved in sports. But on Saturday mornings, I would go out door knocking with other students in our student ministry and encouraging, inviting, and praying, and sharing the gospel. I was going on mission trips. I, I was having two quiet times a day. I was there in church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I, I ended up going to a, the Christian high school there, graduated from there in my last two years of high school. I was saturated with the gospel. But... Internally, I looked a whole lot probably like the Pharisees in this text. But on April 24th, 1997, through God's word and God's spirit moving in my heart, I was brought to a point where I stopped trying to be, or, or let me put it this way, stopped trying to force my religious experience into salvation. And through 1 John chapter 5, Verse 12, I believe, God brought me to faith where it says, He who has the Son, S-O-N, has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. I knew it, but I never, I guess, verbalized it up until that point that all I had was religious experience devoid of any relationship with that Savior. And that day, between 12.45 and 1 o'clock, I went into the bathroom in the warehouse where I was working that day and got on my knees and prayed that the Lord would forgive my sin and change my life. I remember standing up. I'm not a real mystical guy. I'm not a touchy-feely dude. I'm real black and white and objective. But I remember standing up and just feeling, no, no longer feeling the weight and the burden that I'd carried for five years, trying to make my spiritual experience work. I was free. There's new life within me. Have I been perfect since then? Goodness gracious, no. Goodness, no. But I'm not where I once was, right? God changed my life that day. Maybe in this room this morning, there's someone. That story resonates with you. The picture that we see in these Pharisees resonates with you because you may have a form of godliness, but it's devoid of the power of God. And today, you need to give your life to Jesus Christ. Some of you in this room, you're not the Pharisee. You're genuinely in relationship with Jesus Christ. But again, drift is a constant threat. 
Drift happens easily. Drift happens without us many times even noticing it. And so perhaps this morning, the, the Spirit of God through His Word is just saying, hey, 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 there's a drift in your life. You're not as passionate for the Lord. You're not as loving toward others. There's a little bit more Pharisee in you than Jesus. And so you need to get that in check. What do you do, Lord God? Sin. I'm walking at a guilty distance. I'm not where I need to be. My focus is not on you. It's on It's on me. It always comes back to self. So I don't know where this hits you this morning, but God has a word for us. And God wants us to respond to that. And so this morning, whatever it is, in just a moment, and Trevor comes and leads us in this time of response, you need to respond to the teaching of God's word, to the Spirit's drawing upon you. Do you need to know Jesus, the Lord and Savior? I'm going to invite you to come. We're going to get you off with one of our encouragers, maybe one of our elders, and and they'll walk through the gospel with you this morning. But let's respond in faith. Let's respond in repentance. Let's respond to the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today that you are a God who continues to call us to yourself. Lord, in this room, there may be, perhaps there is, those who need to be saved. Lord, they might have never ever made a decision for you. And, and this morning they realize that and they know that's the greatest need of their life. And, and Lord, they're, they're being prompted by you to confess their sin, turn from that and receive forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive that new life that you promise. Lord, others might be holding on to a religious experience like I was so many years ago. And Lord, they need to come to the end of themselves and realize that religion will never be enough It will always fail them. It will always leave them empty and longing for more. And yet in their sinfulness and in their flesh, they will think and believe that that is enough, which is nothing else than an evasion against the God who loves them. So, Father, I pray that they will humble themselves before you, confess their sin, and receive new life in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for believers in this room because the drift is a threat. The drift is so easy to fall into. And perhaps, Lord, there is some folks adrift today. They're being sucked out into the deeper, dangerous seas of religiosity. Father, I pray you help them to recognize it and call out for help. God, I was able to get back to the shore a few years ago. It was only by the sheer effort of a lot of swimming and trying to get into the current and ride it. But, Lord, when it comes down to spiritual things, there's nothing you can do to help yourself. We have to call out to God. And so, Father, I pray this morning that there would be a genuine call for the God of heaven to touch their lives and to change them. We thank you for the scriptures that teaches us and displays this in every text, every page. And I pray it happened this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand your... We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.